Let me add my good morning to Tom Werner's. Uh, my name is Tom Ricks. It's a Tom Parade this morning, I guess. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree. It's great to see all of you here worshiping with us this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible and you would like to, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. The passage will be on the screen in a few minutes. We're gonna, we have some work to do before we get there, but we are beginning this morning uh, a 12-sermon series in 13 weeks. Uh, we have one special Sunday for our Stephen ministry in a couple of weeks, uh, but we're going to take 12 of the next uh, 13 weeks, and we're going to talk about, as you see uh, on the screen there, the big four. We're going to talk about some of the deeper questions in life. As you were coming in this morning, you passed a chalkboard, more than likely, uh, if you came in downstairs and dropped off children, or if you walked in by the front door. I don't know if you took a minute to glance at it or not, but there was a question that was listed on the board. Chip also referred to it in his call to worship. And the question is this, what keeps me from sharing the hope that is in me? David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons have recently come out with a new book uh, entitled Good Faith. I would encourage you to read it uh, if you're a disciple of Jesus or if you're wondering about Christianity and whether or not it uh, has any meaning in this, uh, in this day and age, in the 21st century. Uh, but two of the words that they use to describe how culture feels about Christianity today. So they're talking about going out and doing research. Uh, Gabe Lyons is uh, the director of the Barna Research Group. Uh, Dave Kinnaman runs a, a research organization called Q. So they did a lot of thorough research for this, and they came up with two words that best describe how the world looks at Christianity today in America in the 21st century, and those two words are irrelevant and extreme. Let me talk about those two for just a minute and share with you some of their findings. They asked people different questions about their different perceptions of the church. One of the questions they asked was, do you believe that ministers are reliable at helping people live out their convictions? And only 25% of the United States population said that I was of any use to anybody on any level whatsoever. <laughs> I at least got 25%. That's batting 250. You bet 250 and you're a shortstop. You got it made. Uh, another question was about charitable giving. One third of all charitable giving in the United States is faith-based. In other words, people are motivated to give because of their faith. It is by far, one-third is by far the largest group of givers in the United States. And yet 50% of the U.S. population believe that giving would still happen if there was no such thing as the church and as faith. 75% of the United States population believes that a person can live a good life and be a decent person uh, without any faith whatsoever. Irrelevant. Christianity is irrelevant to our culture today. But the message and the news uh, gets a little bit worse uh, when you think about the other word that they use to describe how the culture feels about those of us who have a faith in Christ. And that word is extreme. 60% of the U.S. population, which would include a number of disciples of Jesus in that group, believe that trying to convert someone to faith is an extreme activity, and extreme is used in the negative. 45% of self-identifying agnostics, atheists, and religiously unaffiliated agree with the statement, Christianity is extremist. 25% of non-Christian millennials, the next generation that's coming along and is going to have the greatest impact and influence in our culture, 
for the next 20 years believe this statement to be true. The Bible is a dangerous book of religious dogma that has been used for centuries to oppress people. Irrelevant and extreme. So as Kinnaman and Lyons did their work, they thought, well, if that's the case, if that's how, how a majority of people are beginning to feel about the Christian community, we wonder how the Christian community is feeling about itself. How are they reacting to this sense of, you know, just kind of go over there and be quiet and leave us alone? And so they began to ask uh, active church members to describe their emotions. They didn't give them any of this setup. They just said, how are you feeling in the context of the larger culture in your day and age? And here's some of the words that were used to describe, that we use to describe ourselves. 54% said that they felt misunderstood on a regular basis. 44% said that they feel marginalized. Again, kind of pushed to the side. 38% chose to use the word silenced. Feel like I've lost my voice. 31% percent acknowledge that they were afraid to speak up in, uh, in any public context. And 23% said that they were afraid to quote unquote, look stupid, irrelevant and extreme. It seems to be having an impact on the Christian community. How do we respond? What should our reaction be to this trend in our culture? Should we just be silent? Should we just be quiet and allow ourselves to be sidelined? Perhaps that's the appropriate thing to do. Perhaps, after all, our critics are right. Religion is supposed to be something that's practiced in the privacy of our own home, our own churches, but we're not to bother anybody else with it. Or maybe we're just not shouting loud enough. (laughs) Maybe we just need to be more obnoxious than we've already been. You know, just kind of take your typical three-year-old who really wants something and doesn't feel like a parent is, is focused in on them and how hard they try to get that person's attention. Maybe that needs to be our reaction. We're going to spend 12 of the next 13 Sundays working through this question. The good news is it's not a new question. The good news is this is not the first time on the planet that people have described Christians as irrelevant or extreme. Peter speaks to this in his letter to the Christians scattered around the Roman Empire. And in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, he writes the following words. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we live in such a day and age. Father, we thank you that the, uh, the fog is lifting and the battle lines have been drawn. Lord, we are not at war with our neighbors. We are not uh, experiencing animosity, anger, and hatred towards those who, uh, who live in our neighborhoods, with whom we go to school, with whom uh, we do business, simply because they don't know you. But there is a clear culture shift that is happening in our generation, in our day and age, and the opportunity is greater than ever to be silent and to be quiet, to tuck our tails and just kind of move out of the way or to embrace the challenge and the opportunity. 
of learning what your word says about how we live, how we speak, what our attitude should be. So, Father, we pray this morning and over these next few weeks that you would give us great clarity. We pray that we would understand your word. Father, we pray that this topic would actually make us better students of your word and of our culture. Father, we pray that you would give us great passion in our hearts, first and foremost, for the Lord Jesus, for his grace and his mercy that has been given to us. Father, we pray that you would make us people of action, people that exhibit the kind of character that our Lord Jesus would have us exhibit to the world around us so that people would take seriously the claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, this isn't about our reputation. It isn't about Green Tree being well thought of or about Christians from Green Tree uh, being held in, in a certain light to people. It's about sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, that is beyond me. It is beyond my wisdom, my understanding, my perseverance. Certainly my sin gets in the way of that happening. So, Father, uh, if we're here to listen to me, we're wasting our time. Father, I pray that we would listen to you. As you speak to us through your word this morning, uh, as, as we uh, move through this passage, we pray that you would teach us, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand what you're saying to everyone gathered in this room this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's a sermon in a sense. We're going to kind of get into deep waters pretty quickly this morning. In a culture where Christianity is seen more and more as irrelevant and extreme, disciples of Jesus must remain faithful in attitude, in word, and in action. That's what Peter tells us in the two verses that we read this morning. Peter's talking to a group of people who live in a culture where they're seen as either irrelevant or a danger to the culture around them. And Peter calls them first to a particular type of attitude. Secondly, he talks to them about the words that ought to be used as they engage with the folks around them. And then lastly, he talks about the actions of their lives. And so we want to look at this passage clearly uh, as an introduction, as a bedrock for what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. First, let's talk about attitude. In verse 15, Peter says this, but in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Peter's saying, first and foremost, this is an issue of the heart. First and foremost, this is a question of our emotions, not just our intellect. Peter's assuming that we have already decided intellectually to give our lives to Jesus. That we, we have heard the message of the gospel, that we've heard about our sinfulness, about our brokenness, about our rebellion against God. We've seen that to be true in our lives, and we've asked what can be done about this, and the gospel has been explained to us. The Lord Jesus Christ took on human form, came to this earth, died in order that he could take our place. We call that substitutionary atonement. Someone was my substitution. He atoned for, made, made my life right from all of my sins so that I could experience forgiveness, salvation, and life eternal. Peter's understanding in this letter is that we've gotten that. We've got it in our heads. The question is whether or not it works its way down into our emotions, into our hearts. Is Jesus my Lord emotionally? What would that mean for you and for me, for Jesus to be our Lord emotionally? I would suggest that what Peter is trying to get to here is that it would mean that Jesus is the focal point of my deepest feelings. 
that he is the one who holds my deepest love and my greatest allegiance. There's no one else in front of me. And fidelity is not just about knowledge. Being faithful to Christ and saying he is above everything else is not just about knowing who he is, but it's about connecting with him emotionally. As we, as we sang the songs this morning, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. I'm loved by you. That's who I am. That's who I am. That's who I am. Why do we repeat that? Some of you love repeating songs and, and lyrics and others of you are like, when's this one going to be over, right? I get that. I understand it. Everybody has a different opinion about music. But that song we ought to just sing all day long because it's so hard for us to grasp emotionally that that's true. What does it mean emotionally for you and for me that Jesus is our Lord? It's a reaction that, that ought to move us to worship and to a new vision in life. I remember when our oldest son, Nathan, was a, a junior in college. In the summer between his junior and senior year of college, he went to Quantico and went to Officer Candidate School for the Marine Corps. And it was, it was 10 of the worst and best weeks of his life. Uh, and at the very end, we got to go there and to, and to see the graduation and be on the parade grounds. And, and it was really amazing. And uh, after the graduation, Nate could only talk about one person, Staff Sergeant Pettis. Staff Sergeant Pettis was his drill instructor for the last 10 weeks. Staff Sergeant Pettis had done all he could to try to get Nate to quit. He had done all he could to be obnoxious and unreasonable and unruly and, and ask the, 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 the things that just simply couldn't be accomplished day after day after day, trying to wear Nate down, trying to get him and the other 65 guys in his platoon to quit. And only 37 of them graduated. So he was successful uh, about 50% getting folks out. But Nate said this, I would follow that man anywhere. I would follow him to the gates of hell. He's a real leader. And he didn't say that intellectually, right? He said that emotionally. He said, what, what that person has done in my life, what he's taught me, what I've learned about myself and what I've, what I've seen of his commitment and his loyalty makes me want to be a different person. Do I have that emotional reaction about my Lord? Or is Jesus my Lord? I get it, but now I got to get on with my day. Paul says, if we're going to have an impact, if we're not going to be irrelevant, if we're going to move past the notion of being extreme, we have to have an attitude that says, Jesus the Lord is holy. We've set him apart in our hearts. We can't just know Jesus is Lord. We need to be inspired by him, in awe of him. He needs to hold our truest and deepest worship? What would the impact be in a culture that is filled with criticism towards Christianity, towards the church, if they saw disciples of Jesus in Little Green Tree Community Church in Kirkwood, Missouri, filled with passion, filled with fidelity and emotional love for Jesus? Paul says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. What are the idols in my life that stand between me and that experience? I think it's actually fairly easy to come to Green Tree on a Sunday morning and, and have that emotional experience, but do I take it with me the rest of the week? Do, do, I, do I sit in God's word uh, until I weep for joy? Do I, do I go to God in prayer and stay there for, for a while until I'm overcome emotionally 
by the grace and the, and, and the mercy of Jesus. I know you all enjoy the little tears I shed every once in a while. I know they, they, they put smiles on your face and, you know, there goes Tom again. But you know what? I wouldn't trade those tears for the world because I'm overcome with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, I, and I have that fleeting experience and I want it more and more. I want it kind of less and less up here because I know y'all just enjoy it way too much. But I want it more and more in my, in my heart to be true. That Jesus emotionally is the greatest attachment in my life. That, that my love for him, that my compassion for him is one of the most real things in my life. So Paul starts out and he says, we've got to have the right attitude. Secondly, Paul says, though, there, there are words that need to be spoken. There, there's a message that needs to be shared. This is not just about how we live our lives. We'll get to that in just a minute. But Paul says there are words to be shared. And so he says in the second half of verse 15, he says this, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. So if the context is fidelity to Jesus, what is next is the message. And if you want to boil the message down to its simplest form in this verse, the message is, is, is this, always give anyone hope. Always give anyone hope. It just so happened that they fell on the, on the screen in order uh, when, I was, when I was downloading them the other day. But that's the message that we must be prepared to explain. And so Paul says, be prepared to make a defense. When he uses that language, make a defense, there are a couple of nuances to that, to that language. What he's saying there is you need to have a reasoned explanation for what you believe. So now we're back to the intellectual side of things, not just the emotional, but also the intellectual. He says, you've got to think through what you believe to the extent that you could talk about it with other people. So coming back to some of the emotions that we feel when we don't always share the hope within us. Some folks said we feel silenced or we feel afraid to speak. Why are you afraid to speak? Well, probably because you're afraid that you don't have the answer. So Paul says, we need to be a people of preparation. We need to be a people who say, I might get asked a question today about my relationship with Jesus. We love to talk about all kinds of things in our culture. We love to talk about somebody's batting average, you know, in the, in the baseball season, whether the, the Cardinals bullpen is going to make it or not. We love to talk about the latest movie that's come out and whether it was, it was worth it, it was any good or not. I, I made a huge mistake of taking Cindy to the five-star theater where they have those reclining chairs, you know, and you can, and they bring the food right to you. And I've seen so many bad movies now just because we want to go sit in those chairs. It's really <laughs> depressing. Like we'd spend less money if we bought two of those and put them in front of the TV at our house. <laughs> we love to talk about that stuff. We love to talk about our kids. We love to talk about what's going on with our children. We love to talk about those of us that are my age and old. We love to talk about our grandkids and, and how cute they are and how wonderful. We love to talk about all these things. We're prepared at the drop of a hat. I can tell you what was wrong with the Blues lineup last night, even though they won the game, all right? And it's not even 9.30, well, 9.40, okay? I'm, I'm ready to go on that one. We love to talk about all kinds of things. If somebody walked up to you at lunch today and said, could you tell me about Jesus, would you be ready? Would I be ready? Paul says, always be prepared to make an intellectual defense, a reasoned defense. And that language can be taken a couple different ways. One, it could mean technically in a courtroom. 
So my, my pals that are lawyers, right? You gals and guys that are lawyers, that's, that's lawyer language right there, right? Somebody's going to make a defense. They're going, you know, Perry Mason or whoever, they're going to stand up and argue a case. That is legal language. And Paul, there's a nuance in the way that Paul use, or Peter uses the word there. It can also mean having a lively debate with a friend. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a trained legal mind. It could be two friends sparring over ideas. So it doesn't leave any of us out of the equation. Peter doesn't say, you know, for those of you that have a good legal mind, now it's all on you and the rest of us are going to go have, a, have some donuts in the, in the atrium and you guys get it worked out, right? Peter says for all of us, whether, whether it's in a courtroom setting or with a friend, we have to study, we have to study the word, we have to study our audience as well. What's going on in our culture today? Are we aware of the scenarios around us? Spurgeon, the great preacher from England, used to say, I read my, bi- my I have my devotion with my Bible in one hand and, and with the newspaper in the other. And I've got to know both of them equally as well. Are we so emotionally attached to Jesus that we're willing to study and prepare and understand who are the people in my context? If you're a doctor, your context is different than maybe somebody who's a business person. If you're a business person, your context is probably different than if you're a student in high school right now or in college right now. If you're a student in high school or college right now, your context is probably different than a, than a mom who is raising kids, and that's the career that, that she's making of her life. And a mom who's raising her kids, her context is probably different than someone who's a little bit older, uh, who's retired. Uh, and their context is probably a little different than the next person. But are we all understanding the word of God and understanding the folks around us to the extent that we are always ready to give anyone a reason for the hope. And let's not miss that word. Hope is important, right? Hope. We know there's more than today. We know that our sin won't keep us out of heaven because what the cross of Christ has done for us. We had a, a memorial service here yesterday for uh, a Kirkwood family, but not a, not a Green Tree family. And uh, her name is Allison Schomburg, and she died a couple of weeks ago. And uh, she contracted brain cancer less than a year ago, and, and in 305 days it took her life. But she was a believer. And we got to talk about the fact that she didn't have any hope anymore because she didn't need it. Now it was reality. And she was looking Jesus in the face. And how cool is that? That's the hope you have if you're a disciple of Christ. And, and say what you want, will, the world doesn't have an answer for that one. The critics of the Christian community, does, none of them have an answer. It's a blind hope. Well, I, if there is a heaven, maybe I hope I've done enough good stuff to get in. Or it's a, it's a fatalism. I don't think there's anything afterwards. This is it. And I'm just going to make the best of these 60, 70, 80 years. We have an answer through the Lord Jesus that is an answer of true and living hope. We don't point people. I don't say to people, look at Tom Ricks. I say, look at Jesus. He's the reason for the hope that I have. Paul says our attitude needs to be passionate and our words need to be clear. And thirdly, he says, the actions of our lives need to match up with the message and the tone, right? Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. The first word there is gentleness. The notion there is that we live lives of grace and compassion. I liken this uh, word gentleness to uh, how you are so very, very careful when you hold a newborn baby, right? How many people in this room have held a newborn baby? Raise your hand. Almost everybody, okay? If you haven't, go over to the hospital and ask to borrow one for a little while. 
Actually, if you haven't done it, go serve in the nursery. We got a bunch of babies downstairs right now, and we have some folks that are making some more. So there's always plenty, plenty of babies. Can you not say that in a sermon? Should I not have said that? Was that okay? We'll move on. Um, but you don't, you know, when 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 our kids turn three or four, you know, I'd throw them up in the air, and you know, we'd we'd you know get them to you know jump off of stuff and catch them and throw them in the pool and help swim. But you don't do that with an infant. You don't throw a baby around. You hold that baby so carefully. And I remember how scared I was when Nathan was born because I had probably never held a baby, right, until I held my own. And it was like, oh, my gosh, I hope I don't break them, right? (laughs) Do you think about that when you're sharing your faith with people? Or are you out to win an argument? Or are you out to put somebody in their place and rough them up a little bit and really show them who knows what? (laughs) Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, treat that person who doesn't know me like an infant that needs to be oh so tenderly cared for and loved. Christopher Hitchens was, Hitchens was one of the most avowed public uh, intellectual atheists that the world has ever seen. He died in 2011. But the last few years of his life, he struck up a friendship in the United States with a guy named Larry Taunton. And, and, and Larry wrote about it in, in his book about Christopher Hitchens. And there's no reason to think that Christopher Hitchens ever came to Christ. But he talked about his friendship with Larry Taunton because all of his friends who were agnostics and atheists didn't have any Christian friends and they, were, they, were, they couldn't understand why he would hang out with these people who were irrelevant and extreme. And Hitchens, about a year before he died, wrote this. If everyone in the United States had the same qualities of loyalty and care and concern for others that Larry Taunton has, we'd be living in a much better society than we do. Larry Taunton understood the notion of gentleness and care with the person that he wanted to share the gospel. The second word that Peter uses here, not only should we be gentle, but we should also be respectful. Now, you would think that 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 notion of respect means that we should respect other people's opinions and we should not be disrespectful to them. And clearly, that's true. I think that's understood in the term gentleness. But Peter's not going horizontal now. Now he's going vertical and he's saying that our relationship with God should be one of respect. That when people look at our lives, they understand that we respect the Lord Jesus. That when when he gives us direction, we listen carefully. When he tells us this is the pathway to go, we respect his authority. We respect his love. We respect the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross, and we follow him. I'm not going to put the verses on the screen, but if you go back to chapter 2 in 1 Peter, and you look at verses 22 and 23, they say this. Talking about Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We respect that about Jesus. And our lives ought to reflect that respect for him. And so what what this verse is saying ultimately is this. If I'm wise in my faith, if I'm kind in my human relationships, And if I always honor Jesus as Lord, I'll have a good conscience. My my conscience will be clear. And it doesn't mean that we'll be without sin. It doesn't mean that we won't ever fall down, that we won't ever make mistakes. But if our minds are set on this pathway, if we say that the way to, to deal with people that think we're irrelevant and extreme is not to fight back and to punch harder than they punch, but rather to, to study the word of God and to study our culture on behalf of our critics, 
because we want to give our lives for our critics, because we want them to know Jesus too. And we don't want to put ourselves or anything else in the way of that. So if we're wise about our faith, if we're gentle and kind in our approach, and if we seek to honor the Lord Jesus more often than not, when you lay your head on the pillow at night, it'll be okay. And you can confess your sins. You can say, Lord, I didn't do it quite right today, but help me to do it even better tomorrow. That's important because the battle will come, right? This isn't a question of if, it's a question of when. Look at how Peter ends this, this message, having a good conscience. Why? So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter isn't saying that the goal is to put someone else to shame, but the goal is that they will actually stop in, in kind of mid-sentence and go, I may have misjudged this group of people called Christians. You may know David Brooks. He's a prominent journalist in our culture. He's read globally, not just nationally. He, he lectures uh, at Duke and at Yale on a fairly regular basis. And, and as far as uh, anything he's ever said about himself, he's an unbeliever. He doesn't follow Christ. Uh, he wrote a book, and uh, he wrote it over 2014. It was published in 2015. The name of the book is called The Road to Character. I would strongly suggest that you buy that book and you read that book. It's a fascinating study on our culture and what's really important in the way in which people live. Uh, in his book, he has acknowledgments in the front end, and there, there's a paragraph, which I'm going to read to you in just a second, to a, a young woman named Ann Snyder. Now, David Brooks is not a Christian. He makes no bones about it. Ann Snyder is a very young woman. She's in her late 20s, and one of her first jobs out of college, somehow she miraculously landed as being uh, Brooks's assistant, one of his main assistants, and helping him edit in writing this book. So here you have a young, green, you know, behind-the-ears Christian who's going to try to be some kind of witness to this intellectual giant David Brooks about her faith. Is there any way that she can come across as not irrelevant or extreme? Well, if you go to the beginning of the acknowledgement, here's what the author wrote. Anne C., initial, C. Snyder, was there when this book was born and walked with me through the first three years of its writing. This was first conceived as a book by cognition and, the decision, and decision making. Under Anne's influence, it became a book about morality and inner life. She led dozens of discussions about the material assigned me reading from her own bank of knowledge, challenged the superficiality of my thinking in memo after memo, and transformed the project. While I was never able to match the lyricism of her prose or the sensitivity of her observations, I have certainly stolen many of her ideas and admire the gracious and morally rigorous way she lives her life." If there are any important points in this book, they probably come from Anne. We really want the next 12 weeks to be helpful. We really want this to be a very practical sermon series. And so we know that it, it, as you've walked in this morning or if you were here before the service began, you've seen this question out on the chalkboard or on the screen. What keeps me from sharing the reason for the hope that is in me. And so we wrestled with that a little bit this week, a couple of us on staff, we talked about what might some of those answers be. And we don't want to tell you what your answer is, but we want you to come up with one. And in a minute, I'm going to actually, the, the application in, in just a minute is going to be to get your phones out and send me a text message. 
Okay, that, that's going to be the application of the sermon. So the only time I'm ever going to tell you to get your phones out while I'm preaching a sermon. But we began to ask some questions. So I want to kind of, kind of fuel the, the thinking by some of the thoughts we came up with of why people might say, well, here's what keeps me. The first one is this. I, I don't really have any hope for Jesus myself. I haven't come to a faith in him yet. If that's where you are this morning, we, we'd love to know that because we want to make sure that every sermon that we preach, whether it's me or somebody else, we want to make sure that you always see a clear pathway to Jesus. So we don't want to miss out on that. You don't need to be embarrassed if that's your scenario. In fact, we can't tell you how grateful we are that you'd come and hang out with us on Sunday mornings and you'd consider the claims of Jesus Christ. But that might be your reason. I'm not going to share something with somebody that, that isn't mine and I, I get that completely. Secondly, could be that I struggle to explain my faith to others. I'm just not quite sure that I have a complete grasp on it. Uh, third may be that I'm afraid to share my faith with others. Maybe you've had a bad experience. Maybe you tried to share your faith with somebody and they mocked you and made fun of you and made you look foolish in front of other people. You said, I, I don't ever want to go back there. I'm just, I, I, I don't want to have that experience again. You might also say, you know what? I don't know very many people in my life who don't believe what I believe. You know, it's kind of the castle versus the kingdom mentality. It's, it's, it's kind of scary out there. So we're going to come inside the castle and we're going to make sure the moat's nice and deep and we're going to put a lot of alligators in it. We're going to bring the drawbridge up and we're going to hunker down and we're going to stay till the cavalry arrives, right? And when Jesus comes back, it'll all be good, right? And so you, I, I don't even, I've kind of separated myself. I, I don't even know too many people who uh, are believers. Uh, it might just be that I, I don't feel motivated to, to share my faith. With, uh, with other folks. I, I don't sense the, the need or the, the urgency to do that. All of those, I think, would be honest. And then we came up with one other one, and it's other. You might have, you might have a, a, a different reason uh, that, that you have in your own heart. But I'm going to give you a, a text number here uh, on the screen, and uh, I'm going to pray for us in just a minute. Uh, but before I pray for us, I'm going to ask you if you would be so kind. And, and, and if you can't think of it right now, if you're like, I don't do, I'm not good on the spot, jot the number down. And you can set it to us, you know, later on today uh, or tomorrow morning. But we want to make sure when we come back next Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday and we're, and we're going through the study, uh, the big four relates to four big questions in life. Where did I come from, right? Is there a true morality? Where am, where am I going? I want to make sure that those are the right sermons. I want to make sure that those are the helpful. And if they're not, we're going to switch gears and we're going to go in a different direction. It wouldn't be the first time that we said, you know what, that, we, we messed that up. We're going to do this instead of this. But we need your help to do that. I want to make sure that what we do is helpful for us as a congregation to share God's words with others because it's true. People see us as irrelevant. They're nice about it. Uh, most of the people that said pastors aren't very good at helping people said they actually thought they were nice people, right? But we don't really need them. Other people are scared by us. You're an extremist. How dare you try to tell me that, that I need to become a Christian too? So let us know what you're thinking in order that we can prepare together to follow Peter's direction inspired by the Holy Spirit. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and that it speaks to every scenario of our lives. Lord, there's, there's nothing new about how our culture is reacting to the gospel. It, it, it has been for some generations that Christianity was 
uh, prominent in our culture, that it was uh, accepted broadly. Uh, but that day uh, has come and gone. And so we pray, Father, now that we would uh, not shirk from the opportunities that you have given us to live in this generation, to live in this day and age, and to share Jesus with others. So, Father, we pray that, that whatever uh, reasons we have that, that maybe hinder us or keep us from sharing with others, that over the next few weeks that you would do a work in our hearts and our minds that would maybe remove some of those obstacles to the extent that Jesus would be honored as Lord and that others would come to know him as their Savior as well. We pray in his name. Amen.